There was no evidence that governor, that, that uh, Mr. Noriega was involved in drugs, no hard evidence until we indicted him. Does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. It does not. Not wittingly. Have we ever tried to meddle in other countries' elections? Oh, probably, but uh, it was for the good of the system. Oh, we don't mess around other people's well, elections, too. podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sadie. Um, on this podcast, you know, we, we cover a lot of different topics, everything from organized crime to, to drug cartels and especially white collar crimes such as, you know, corrupt politicians or crony capitalists. Um, but the subject for today, it, it's a pretty dark and it's, it's a tough subject. Um, but the subject is basically the fact that rape laws are not properly enforced in this country. And it's not a matter of incompetence. And by the end of the episode, I firmly believe that you will, you will believe as well that, that this is all really part of a racket. And I have absolutely the perfect guest on the show to discuss this topic. Her name is Megan Ebos. She is a contributing writer at The Appeal, which is part of Harvard Law School's Fair Punishment Project. And she's also the co-founder and executive director of People for the Enforcement of Rape Laws. Uh, welcome to the show, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you. I was kind of hoping you could maybe, you know, just tell the audience, you know, a little bit about your background and, and your organization. So back in 2003, when I was 16, unfortunately, I became the victim of a stranger rape in my home by someone who had apparently stalked me. I had never seen... Um, well, I, di I didn't get a look at him because he was wearing a ski mask, so I had um, no way to identify him uh, when I reported it to the police um, after the attack. So I uh, anyway, I, I did report it to the police that day, and instead of really investigating what I told them had occurred, they told me that I was making it up and that I wasn't raped, and... Um, they they asked me weird questions, like leading questions, and accused me of lying and threatened to arrest me for filing a false police report. Uh, luckily, I was not arrested because my mom overheard them threatening me, and she um, she reassured them that I didn't have a, a lying problem. That's what they were accusing me of. And we went to the Rape Crisis Center then, and I had a forensic examination done. Um, I don't think I need to go into the details no, <laughs> about no, no. a forensic exam, but suffice it to say, it's very humiliating and uh, obviously traumatizing to have strangers lay their hands on you right after you've experienced an assault. Absolutely. But I... I, I consented to that medical procedure because I was under the impression that um, the police would use what they could recover of my body to investigate the person who had attacked me. Um, after that day, we really didn't hear much back from the police, except we did find out 
um, because my parents actively called my detective that a very similar case had been reported two days after mine. Um, this time the victim was a 12-year-old girl, and it was within my same neighborhood. But in this case as well, the police accused this girl of making it up as well. And um, they they just, they the, the response that they gave me and my family was, we have no reason to believe that if crimes did occur these days that that they're connected and um this was at the end of the school year and uh kids you know young kids would be at their homes all day like when they got out of school for the summer so we were just very concerned that there was a person out there um apparently stalking and raping uh, people in the community and the police weren't even trying to put the pieces together to solve who was doing it. So my parents actually tried to get the local news to talk about this at that time, back in 2003. But um, from what my mom has told me, the, the reporters that they called back then said, okay, well, we, we've got to check with the police first. And then so the police told them what they told us. We they they told the news. We don't have any reason to believe that if crimes happened, that they were connected, and we don't want to cause um, a hysteria in the community. So right. don't report on this. Right. So uh, they they effectively kept it off out of public knowledge for um, many years. Um, so th this is a stranger who I couldn't identify. Um, and so that meant that I couldn't protect myself from him. I was, um, I didn't have any way to spot him and run away. Like if I ever encountered him again and, exactly. and I knew that he knew a lot about me, but I knew nothing about him. And after the police acted the way that they did it was just very confusing i had never had any experience with law enforcement and neither had anyone in my family so it was shocking to us because we thought that the police solved crimes so I, I to cope with that i just had to go into denial and try to tell myself that nothing had happened and and to try to focus on school and college and then law school and I, I had some really unhealthy coping mechanisms psychologically that were not sustainable and then uh, in 2012 the case all came back into my life when the local media reported that there was a suspected serial rapist that was out on the loose that had struck they said in the area of town that I lived in so thinking uh, all that time, I thought that they had not been able to find anything in my rape kit. And that's why we had never heard anything. But so at that time, I called the, new, the, the police myself and, and I said that case sounds like it was committed in the same time frame and area of something that happened to me. Can you check on this to see if the case is connected? And then I, I later have learned that they didn't, they had not tested my rape kit until after I made that phone call that day. 
the rapist can it turned out to be the same person and he was caught soon after they started looking for him that year um and he committed several of these crimes right he committed at least seven more rapes uh after the police mishandled my case but there's no telling how many more and he got progressively more violent after my my attack and i wouldn't be surprised if he's killed people so anyway i um it was very shocking (laughs) you can imagine to find out that you you went through that horrible procedure and they i mean it's like a total scam it was it's like it's, I still can't believe it, even though I know that it's something that has happened to so many people. I, I still can't believe that they didn't test my rape kit. Um, and now I'm getting off track. Um, so I, uh, I asked them why they hadn't tested my rape kit, and they didn't answer me really so I had to start connecting with people in the community and and um, raising my own voice and asking the questions myself in like a more and more public way. And eventually, the city revealed that they had failed to test over twelve thousand other rape kits mm. in the Wow. And, and that's the thing that's, um, this isn't, uh, obviously you know it, but um, maybe not everyone who's listening knows that this isn't just a, a situation in Memphis. There, there are several cities all across the U.S. in which they've got thousands or tens of thousands of untested rape kits. The reason why I want to... Yeah, could I jump in? Oh, Wait, sure, sorry. sure. Can I just no, jump into that point? Because it is true that this is a phenomenon across the country, but per capita Memphis is is outrageous. Memphis is not that big of a city and twelve thousand. Detroit had eleven thousand in two thousand nine. Just to put it in perspective. Right. Right. Um, anyway, I just wanted to get that off. No, 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 absolutely. Um, there are tens of you know, who knows, maybe hundreds of thousands I mean who knows what the- of these untested kits and you know probably around the time when you realize what happened with you that's when i at least i started to see these kinds of stories in the news Mm -hmm. and the reason why i'm kind of bringing this up is because i read one of your articles and that's how i i I really came across your work and now i've kind of started to correct the the language that i use um there's oh thank you so much that's Uh, so great um, but I refer to the backlog, and that's something that you hear throughout the media. And I and I understood that I, I, we agreed on the concept, but I actually fully agree with your methodology of not using that term. And I was just kind of hoping that you know give a little a little more information of why you think that nobody should use that term backlog anymore. Sure, language is so important. It's and I'm not saying this as someone who's trying to police other people's language. I'm talking about it more in terms of how language affects how we think about and understand things. And the word backlog is is not an appropriate term to describe something that was neglected and not acted upon. Um, 
and you're not going to be able to understand what happened to rape cases and rape kits like mine if you only if you think of it in that term. So um, I will grant that there is arguably um, like a proper use of that term in the context of crime scene evidence. And the National Institute of Justice defines the term backlog as a sample that was sent to a crime lab. And once it's at the crime lab, it hasn't been tested within 30 days of being there. So uh, that, that sounds fine. But that should never be conflated with a, a piece of evidence like my rape kit that the police just didn't send to a lab. Mm-hmm. Until, like, a third party, or until I called them nine years later. The, and the, when you hear about untested rape kits in police or in the news, most of the time, like, I would say 99% of the time, you're talking about forensic evidence that was in police custody and never left police custody. And it never left police custody because, of course, if they weren't investigating the cases, they weren't going to test the forensic evidence and the cases were not going to be prosecuted. So, like, it, you have to understand that to understand this problem. And I think that the term backlog obscures the fact that the police just didn't investigate these cases because it implies that they sent in the evidence and then for some other reason like couldn't have them tested right no i i fully agree and i think really one of the real misconceptions within the media is again we talk about the cost of testing these kits and i mean it's a somewhat valid point but again it's not really the accurate point a lot of times they'll say that like the test cost costs you know anywhere from about a thousand to fifteen hundred so say you know you've got 10,000 in your state, that's roughly $10 million. We have this massive budget for fighting the war on drugs and for all of these other types of crimes. You know, like the federal budget for the drug war is something like $50 billion a year. So to use that as a convenient excuse, it, it is really not accurate. And again, like you said, no, they're, not. They're, not even te- they're not even submitting the test to begin with. And one thing to add on to that, is that actually they have had the money to test the rape kits. So let's assume that the, the problem was because they didn't have the money. No, they did have the money. They've had the funding under the Debbie Smith Act, which is part of the Violence Against Women Act, since 2004. Hmm, I'm not familiar they, with they, that. It, they, had to, they had to apply for the money and then test the rape kits that's the only initiative that would have been required on their part as law enforcement agencies. Those grants are distributed to um, state and local law enforcement agencies through each state. So, so it, it's not at all an excuse to, to talk about the cost of testing a rape kit. But um, actually, I like my hypothesis is that a, a large um, part of why some of the advocacy and officials have use the word backlog is because it um, obscures the uh, fact that that funding program has been such a 
failure, but we keep reauthorizing it. Right. It's kind of a red herring, basically. It's a total red herring. Yeah, I fully agree. And, and just kind of on that same kind of thought process where we're talking budgets, again, it's like there's a culture within a lot of law enforcement bureaucracy of kind of chasing money. You know, like, like I said, we mentioned the drug where you can get yes. those federal grants, you can get asset forfeiture. And not only that, um, it's a term I like to use. I've, I've heard you use it, too. It's the low hanging fruit. To get a conviction in a rape case is very difficult versus, you know, a drug case. Drugs are everywhere. You know, you, you pull over enough people, you're going to get drugs. It's much easier to solve a drug case than it is to solve, for example, a stranger rape. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, that's actually um, in that same article that I was mentioning that you wrote. I, th- there was one statistic in there that really blew my mind, and it, it, it was referring to the clearance rates um, for rape. And you would think with all this technology and everything that things would be getting better, but it's actually not the case. Back in, um, I've got it right so back in the mid-90s, clearance rates for rape uh, was around 51%, which is obviously bad to begin with. But now it's roughly around well, it's 40%. To, it can be hard to solve rapes. And back in the 90s, the DNA testing wasn't as widely used as it is now. So they, it, it could have been harder to solve stranger rapes back then. But 50% doesn't seem like that high. But may, but back in the day, like before we had DNA analysis, it's, it's very hard to solve a crime. It, it's, it's much lower now, even though we have all the technology to make it pretty easy to solve if you just process the evidence right so and again it it gets really back to that the idea that you're talking about of not using that term backlog because it's not a backlog they're not submitting the kits they're they're not actively following up on these cases no and i like i said i was reading again some of the stuff on your website and they were talking I mean, I guess I had heard about some of this stuff. You hear about it from time to time, but when you learn that this is really so pervasive, but it was kind of some of the stuff, and it, you, you mentioned some of it in your own personal example there, where, um, but apparently, you know, a lot of a lot of these police departments, they're, they're so statistic-driven that they don't mm-hmm. that they don't want to actually file these complaints as, as, yeah. as a rape. They put it under different... Exactly. Well, a lot of people have seen the show The Wire. It's no different than what what that show was about. The um, the way that we judge our uh, our mayor's crime solving abilities through the police, and the way that we have made to judge the police, which is a really bad way, but we judge them through their their number, the the number of uh, certain things that they collect so um it's not just number of cases solved we also judge officers and police departments on like the number of like stops that they do just like stops of random people in other words if you say you live in memphis and there's this high number of rape cases you know statistically you know reported in your city well that's not good for the investment in the city. It's yeah. not good for the, you know, the overall image of the city. So, right. so there's probably right. pressure within the department. If a person reports a rape, well, let's, let's chalk it up as an assault or let's not even, 
you know, let, let's not even file this. I mean, there, there's a lot of resources yeah. Yeah. You know, on your website that I, that I really think that people should go. And again, I'm going to link to this in, in the show notes. Um, That's so, so important though the numbers thing. Um, it's so important. It's, it's been, it's, Memphis used to be known as the rape capital of the United States. Jeez. I remember hearing that when I was growing up here, but then it stopped being referred to with that name. And I guess we, we know now why they stopped being called that because they just stopped reporting. They stopped taking rape to report. <laughs> but, but yeah, you don't want to have a lot. You, you don't want to have a high crime rate. It, Memphis is pretty notorious for having a lot of crime. Mm. And it's just, it's tied into the way that, that uh, politicians have to do their business because they want to attract, businesses to come here and so we can have jobs and they want the economic development and they want to be able to say that they've they've like helped things but when you have a a high number of different crimes that people are really scared of it makes people second guess if they want to bring their family to live to a city live in a city like this so an easy way to address that problem without actually fixing uh, anything is to just manipulate the number of crimes that you're going to admit that you have taken reports of. And, and then within that, you also don't want to have a high number of unsolved cases because police report all this, these numbers to the FBI and then the, they, they judge each other from these statistics. So they don't want to have a high number of unsolved cases even though it doesn't mean you're doing a bad job if you have a lot of unsolved cases maybe you just couldn't solve them right but they don't want that looks questionable if you have a lot of unsolved cases so they instead of if you have a case like mine that you think may be hard to solve then maybe you wouldn't want to to label it as a rape because then it's going to show up as an unsolved Right. Or like you say, like in your experience, accuse, accuse you of filing a, a false rape report. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, one of the exam- examples I've been coming uh, across lately, it's it's the Miami Herald has been reporting about this quite a bit, and it's just some of that pressure as far as clearance rates. Um, mm-hmm. But there was um, a police chief in, in one of the suburbs of Miami, I forget which one, it had to do with property crimes, not not violent crimes, but property oh. crimes. And he 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 was obsessed with having a perfect clearance rate. And what yes, he actually did, I, I know what you're talking about. I just can't put my finger on the name of that city. Oh yeah, I'll, I can link to that in the show notes. But um, just to sort of sum it up for the audience, just that pressure. Basically, what he did was he instructed his officers to find preferably black males and preferably males who have some sort of you know criminal record and pin the crime on them, just straight up, just pin the crime on them so that we can have a perfect clearance rate. Now he's facing federal charges, and some of the officers are, but I think that kind of gives you an idea of that pressure of the clearance rate and the statistics mm-hmm. and, and how much you know all of this drives it. Yeah, rape is no different. Yeah. So just that's what's going on, and it, it's just it's happening in rape cases. It happens in murder cases too. It's that's just what's going on, and then the untested rape kits are kind of like a symptom of that. They're not right, and and the re- the reason why I think part of why this is kind of a tough thing 
for, for most people to really grasp it, myself included, is because we know that there's problems with the criminal justice system. Everybody's sort of, you know, familiar with mass incarceration and we're overly punitive on a lot of minor crimes, you know, like say drug possession or something like that. But the really serious crime that's difficult to prosecute for the, for the system to process, we essentially, and again, I like to give the, um, the analogy of low-hanging fruit. We give them all of these types of, you know, th- these really relatively minor crimes to chase after while extremely important violent crimes are, are not handled properly. Mm-hmm. So like, like I said, I think that's part of why, um, I think part of why is also, it, it's just so heinous to believe that this could happen, you know? I, I think that, yes, I, tr- I think that's so true. Like I, I've encountered that so much in, in my life. Um, like people don't want to believe something that's that bad. Right. Just, yeah. It, 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 Cause yeah. it really is. I mean, and, and the other thing is, and it's, it's not that no cases get reported or solved or, or, or prosecuted, no, no. but it's just so much of this gets pushed under the rug. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you about this. Um, and it's kind of a little bit off topic, but it, it's something I, I just have to address. And it was something on your, on your website there. You, you've got an article, um, and it, apparently in the city of Memphis, they have a program where victims of, of sex crimes are now being put in, in ankle monitors. If, if you could t- you know, just tell the audience a little bit about this. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for asking me that because I've been wanting an opportunity to revisit this. Um, so the, like when Memphis revealed that it had so many untested rape kits, part of their like PR response was that they're going to keep the public very informed with monthly like PowerPoints of the numbers and the progress being made and what they're doing to change the culture <laughs> and everything. So I keep track of these reports and I started to see um, that they would, they, they included a slide every month that just said GPS ankle monitor program. And it had a picture of an ankle monitor. And then it, it said that they are putting it on X number of suspects, uh, rape suspects, and DV domestic violence suspects, and and then Y number of victims. So I was just, I mean, hopefully, uh, I I don't know. I think when you see a slide from a city saying that with a picture of an ankle monitor and saying that they put a GPS device on victims, it's um, somewhat troubling so i tried to get news media to at least ask mpd what what this meant and they so they asked but the police department just didn't answer them so i just i decided to write something about it myself so i emailed the this woman who's in charge of this task force for untested rape kits like and she's like the pr person in charge of this PowerPoint situation, and um, I, I asked, like, are you putting ankle monitors on victims? Uh, are they being monitored in real time? Do they alert victims when a sus- when the suspect gets within a certain area? And the answers that she gave me were so 
vague and just annoyed that I was asking the questions. So I had to, I, um, I published an article and it, it just described that the Memphis police weren't saying that they're putting a GPS device on victims. And I didn't even say ankle monitor because I, because we, I didn't know for a fact that it was an ankle monitor. I just, because the wording that the woman had used was a GPS device. Right. So I, out of caution, I just used the term GPS device. What, like, what is going on here? They're doing, and then I put in some context because ankle monitors are, like, they can be very unreliable. Um, and I was worried that, that if, if they weren't being monitored by the police in real time, that it could give the victims a false sense of security sure. wearing them. That's what I was most concerned about. Secondarily, I was wondering, because I had heard about victims and witnesses in criminal cases being arrested if they change their testimony or if they don't show up for court. So I was also, I was like, oh my God, it, like, are they going to use these GPS devices? Right. To go, like, they're, facilitate they're essentially arresting. state property, basically. In the eyes well, yeah, of are they going to like facilitate arresting a witness or a victim right. if they like with these devices? Like, what? So I published that, and I got the commentary of a New York attorney, Carrie Goldberg, because I just I wanted to get a quote from someone like an expert. And Carrie didn't have the same questions in her mind that I did, but I I put her comments in the story because I asked her for her comments. Um, so when my story came out, the Memphis news media like picked it up and did their own stories on it. And then like that outlet, the raw story picked it up and wrote like this really inflammatory, um, but accurate. And it got a lot of attention and um, the, the, the police came out and there, there were like two nights of news coverage that, about this, but they, they were very angry and they couldn't believe that someone would question something that helps victims, like, like GPS devices. But, and they, they, they said that the victims are not wearing ankle monitors. They're, they're given a handheld device. So I guess that's good to know because I didn't know that until I had to publish my story. Okay. But I right. now I need I do need to revisit this because I still don't have answers to my questions because on one hand I've seen references to GPS monitors that are given to victims in Memphis. I've only seen one reference to this, but it says that they they don't alert the victims in real time. But then the spokeswoman that I talked to after my story came out, she said that it, they do alert victims in real time. So that's kind I haven't of an important detail. <laughs> kind of important. I mean, uh, yeah. I'm still waiting on on some public records about this too. But but yeah, that's it's a compelling question, isn't it? Are you are you aware of other cities? That are or that have similar systems or at all or no? No, only only when it's a victim or a witness who gets arrested for not coming to court or something like that or false reporting, and then if they get out of jail, like on bond, 
sometimes have an ankle monitor. That that was the only example that I could find of these things being used on victims, even though the spokesperson angrily told me that this is something that's like sweeping the nation. One question, and, and I'm kind of curious about this, um, and I think you really hit the nail on head when you're saying that the these these reports about all of the untested kits, it's it's really kind of a symptom of the larger problem. Because every now and again, you'll see stories in the news, or this city, or that city, and they want to give it like almost the sort of heroic narrative that this lawmaker, oh, and, they, yeah. and they were able to get all of the, the kits tested. Totally. Um, well, what I'm wondering is, I mean... Have you really seen any cities where there really is kind of a cultural change that? No. No. Well, okay. No, I, like like the things that you pointed to, the incentives that we have set up for our law enforcement and our our political um, um, ways of measuring success. We, like we've created a situation where this is going to be going on, and we we have to get away from. Some of the, the contributing factors, like I, I think some of the things that you've identified, like the drug war and the, the going after low-hanging fruit and, and policing for profit, that all um, contributes to the problem. And we haven't seen any of those things meaningfully reformed anywhere that I, that, that I know of. So, no. Well, I wish I could end it on a... A more positive note. Um, <laughs> but yeah, well, at least in the X city and X city and so and so. But no, no. Well, I mean that means that, like I say, I mean, and I started off. I, I wanted to let everybody know. Listen, this is this is a difficult and a, a negative and a dark subject, but I do. It, it's something that really does need to be addressed. And I, I really am thankful for what you've done. What you went through, it would be very easy to just kind of look the other way and try to forget it and move on. Um, But you've exactly you've made this a very public thing. And again, there are thousands of people who've gone through the exact same thing and nothing is being done um, to correct this. Yeah, Um, uh, I guess. One one thing I would like to let everyone know is to, I'm going to link to your your website. There, there's not just a lot of information about this problem. There is information for victims as well, and just different resources. Is there anything you'd like to to add? You know, for for listeners. No, I, I just really appreciate you having me on your show because I want I I take any chance I have to try to get my competing narrative out there even if it means just one person who doesn't believe the police when they tell them that they didn't have enough money to test their rape kit. Um, So I I appreciate the platform. Yeah. Well, actually, another thing, and I I wanted to bring it up for for listeners, because we keep, one of the things, we're trying to counter that false narrative about the money. And again, obviously, there's there's the money. Like you said, there's obviously the federal money. It's also a cost effective. I'm going to link to um, a certain study by uh, by a Stanford professor who not only shows that you know obviously this needs to be done for moral reasons, but it is also extremely cost effective as well. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to link to that in the show notes. Yeah, Megan, thank you, thank you for multiple thank reasons. You. Oh, thank you. Um, I, again, I know this is not something that's easy to talk about, and I, I really do appreciate you coming on the show and, and all that you're doing. 
So thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much. And to everybody who's listening, please share this with your friends. Give it a five-star rating. Um, if you do want to support the podcast, really the best way to do that is to go out and uh, grab a copy of my three-book series. It's on the legal. It's called Rackets. It's on the legalization of drugs and gambling and the decriminalization of prostitution. So thank you so much, everybody, and have a great day. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. I am concerned that the size of some of these institutions becomes so large that it does become difficult for us to um, to prosecute. You can have the license. The price is $250,000, plus a monthly payment of 5% of the gross. Of all four hotels, Mr. Corleone.